0: All right, tonight's going to be all church history, so put thinking caps on, be ready to take lots of good notes. For the Bible pop quiz today, I referenced the lectionary. Uh, The lectionary is uh, 2 Samuel 21, which is the uh, numbering of the people by David. So for the Bible pop quiz, I told everyone to contrast 2 Samuel 21 with 1 Chronicles 24, or is it 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21? I think that's the way it is, right? I believe so. I believe so. I, I can verify. I can verify. It's numbers. See, if I if I if I try to remember numbers, it, it goes horribly wrong. It goes horribly wrong. Yes, it's uh 2 Samuel 24, 1 Chronicles 21. So I told everyone to compare and contrast those two sections because it's the account of the same event of David numbering the people. However, there's drastic differences because 2 Samuel 24 begins with God, where 1 Chronicles 21 begins with Satan. Uh, So it's uh, it's a lot of interesting uh, contrast. So that's what I gave everyone to do today. We were going to do that tonight here, but I'm like, well, since I already have that kind of working there that we'll use tonight for a little bit of church history. So here is what we're going to do. We are going to be studying the history of the author of this particular book. The name of the book is Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ. This book is considered, as it says on the cover, one of the greatest Christian writings of all time. The back of it, one of the most influential spiritual books ever penned, Even secular historians acknowledge the great impact of the book called Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ. All right, so even secular historians acknowledge its significance. Everyone acknowledges its significance. I have a long history with this book. I first discovered it as a teenager and tried to understand it and was baffled by it, did not quite understand what it was doing, what it was trying to do. I didn't really have a theological framework and how to handle it. I didn't really know what to do with it. And I couldn't get anyone else to care uh, because no one else cared to read it. Um, The only time I ever found anyone who uh, was interested, typically it was either teenage girls or or women who uh, had read the book or had some interest in the book. So I kind of dealt with it kind of went back and forth, didn't really know what to do with it. Uh, well, we'll get to all the history and everything in a minute. Um, I will, uh, so I kind of went back and forth with it, didn't know what to do. And then when I uh, am attending church in Papillion, Nebraska, my first Bible, inst- that's the first Bible Institute I uh, attended, Twin Cities uh, Bible Baptist Institute, and at lunchtime, I went down the street from where the church was to Divine Truth Bookstore, which was the Christian bookstore, and lo and behold, what was on the shelf? Experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. Because no matter what, I don't care what Christian bookstore you walked into, in the 80s and the 90s, this book was always everywhere. There was no way to escape this book. It was everywhere. Nobody ever seemed to understand what it was about, but everyone knew about the book. So I, once again, purchased the book. Once again, tried to start up conversations about the book with people in the church. Of course, no one cared. No one, no one bothered to read it. And then, uh, there was a special speaker in. Remember, it's an independent fundamental Baptist church. And the special speaker starts talking about the author of this book, Madame Jean Guyon. And as soon as he mentioned her name, I was like, I've been telling everyone! And he's like, this woman's commitment to Christ is, and he starts talking about her, and I'm like, whoa, this is in an independent fundamental Baptist church, which was somewhat shocking that he's promoting her because Madame Jean Guyon was Catholic. Okay, so it was somewhat like baffling this this was happening. So um I was kind of like, whoa. So now other now afterwards no one still cared, no one read the book anyway. So I, I don't think I've ever found anyone to have a conversation with who've actually read the book because no one will ever read the book. I don't know why. But the book has been well known, it's been sold everywhere. So we're gonna we're and since I have a long history with the book, and I don't know it was A week ago, I don't even know how I stumbled upon it, but I saw her name, Madame Jean Guyon, and I was like, oh, I haven't, I I still need to do something with that book because this is the way I've always been. If there's any book that I have owned, if there's a book that I've owned that either one I've not read or not just read, read, because I always feel like reading a book is anybody can read, no big deal. But I have to do something with the book, right? I need notes. I got I to gotta do something with the book. I mean, if you get a book, you got to do something with it. And this is just one of those books I've never been able to do anything with because I, I just don't know what to do with it. So I'm like, well, I'm going to get the book again. I'm going to buy another copy of the book. And this time, I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to figure it out. And I did figure out a lot, a couple of things that the version that I've been reading for all of these years is a 1970s version. And then I stumbled upon the, uh, the first English ver- version, which is from the 1800s. The original goes back to the 1600s. So we're going to do a little bit of working on this. Now, I have compiled a bunch of information about her life from multiple sources. Some of this, you're going to see that some of the sources disagree. Uh, because I know, shocking. Because that always happens in history. But we're going to do it. Uh, now, uh, I'll give you kind of a brief overview of her. And you're going to immediately know that some of the names associated with her, I'm not even going to bother to try to say names, okay? I'm not even going to attempt, all right? Right, unless you speak French. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like a lot of it, I'm just going to skip, okay? And anything I do pronounce in that sense, it's going to be Texan. It's not going to be French, okay? So I'll do my very best, but uh, yes, there's a lot here about her. So let's start with a basic overview. Madame Jeanne Guyon was born Jeanne-Mar Bovire de la Maté. She was a French mystic and a writer who lived from 1648 to 1717, according to one source. 1648 to 1717. Her name is Madame Jeanne Guyon, but she was born with a, her, her Mar Bouvier. De La Maté, I guess is how you would say it. Do what? No? How would you say it? Jean-Marie la Maté. Okay, there we go. De La mort. De La, De la See, I'm putting Maté because I see the E and I'm like, it's got to be there, okay? All right. I, that's true, true. Okay. All right, so, but uh, she's a, a French mystic writer who lived 1648 to 1717. She is known for her profound spiritual experiences And her writings on Christian contemplative prayer. That's very important. And we're going to look at a brief history and outline of her life and her teachings. Right? All right. So, yeah, got most of that down. 1648, 1717. All right. Here we go. Let's talk about her birth. There's all kinds of controversy surrounding the date of her birth. Nobody seems to know. All right. So, the date of her birth of Madame Guyon, uh, some say eighteen April sixteen forty eight. Okay, this was given in a highly condensed English translation of her autobiography published by Moody Press. They many believes this is a typological error that she was not born on eighteen April sixteen forty eight. Because French editions of the autobiography from the earliest one on, published in 1720, state that she was born 13 April 1648. All right, so yeah, so there's a, there's a debate. So And there's a, re- there's a reason, because uh, possible time of Easter, holiday, maybe they didn't record it because the people in the church were doing something... Yeah, three and eight, it could be that. There could be a lot of reasons. Some say it's typological. Some say maybe they just waited to record it because like everybody was busy with the holiday at the time. Who knows? But, okay, but we're just, I mean, it's not going to change the world. It's not going to change the world. I just want you to know that if I say 18 or 18 April, that could be, it could actually be 13 April. But the main thing is we need to know the year and the year is, 1648. Now, why? What would be significant about the date? Okay, it's a long time ago, right? Right, Well, 1600s, right? 1600s. So this is after what? After the Protestant Reformation. So you know that in 1648, there would be an ongoing probably battle and issue with Protestants and Catholics having their disagreements, and there's a high probability, this is just a, a suggestion, that some of the Protestant teaching may have greatly influenced Madame guyon All right? At least in two areas. And we'll talk about those two areas when we get down to it, if we, if I can hurry up and get through all of this, alright? So, that, I think, is very important. Because, I, because there's two things, and I'll, I'll just mention this now. This is very important, alright? Alright, I may get the French names wrong, but I know this stuff, okay? This is what I do know. Okay, I do know my history very well. Alright, 1648, I do know this. Obviously, Protestant teaching has been much more defined by 1648, right? It's being, it's being systematized. It's becoming very much more pre- prevalent. So there's a high probability, because she comes from a wealthy family, uh, and she's somewhat wealthy, there's a high probability she has access to a lot of this information. And we're going to see it in her teaching. Then something interesting happens, okay? Because the first English translation is in the 1800s. But the next translation, the one I have in my hand, is from the 1970s. Now, this to me is is fascinating. Just as she would have been influenced by the the theological culture of her time, which I think is going to show up in some of her beliefs. You're going to see it in a minute. 1970s, what's going on in Christianity in the 1970s? Some of you were alive in the 1970s. What was going on in the 1970s? Okay, all right. Well, I mean even even if you even if you weren't alive, you you have history books, okay? The Jesus movement, all right? The Jesus movement, all right, because you had this entire segment of of people coming out of the hippie movement, right, where they were denouncing materialism and capitalism, and they were done with all of that, but there was something kind of missing. Right? So then they, they start finding out about Jesus and he's like, you know, love not the world. And it's kind of like, oh, some of the same concepts, right? So then they could, they already had, the hippie movement was already, already kind of very much into spirituality, right? And so they, they were like, it becomes a very much an experiential based kind of Christianity that's arising. The Jesus movement is very much experiential. Music becomes a major part. The birth of contemporary Christian music starts right there. Uh, everything is happening. Well, then guess what? When they, re- when they put out this edition in English, they call it experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. That's not the original title. So I immediately realized I feel that they take her writings and like this is going to be very relevant to the hippies coming out of that movement who's now looking for maybe denouncing the world and materialism, embracing a deeper spiritual experience. They call it experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. So just as she was influenced by the religious culture at her time, her book becomes really influenced. The name of her book, in my opinion, becomes influenced by the religious culture of its time. Which is, which? The, the lesson from all of that is whether we like it or not, Christianity is always influenced by the culture. We We always want to act like we're not. We're the untouchables. But we are. We are influenced by it. Does that make sense? We are influenced by it. So we can't, we can't deny that. And we'll talk more about it when we get to the dates because I've got all the dates and everything here. Because, but I think it's fascinating that it really happens twice. Happens in her life and then all of the years later from the 1600s you jump to the 1970s someone like, hey, we're going re- to publish this again. And we're going to publish it in a way that's going to be interesting to the to- to times in which we find ourselves. Now, I don't know. I obviously, I can only read about that period of time in, in church history. But I know in the 70s, I know all of the stuff that happened. And there was a completely different... Approach. And look, there was a battle within Christianity, right? Because many were like, no, no, no. Keep the hippies and that whole nonsense out. And then others embraced it. That's where Calvary Chapel was born. Chuck Smith, the he's the one who finally said,
1: let them in.
0: Let them bring their music. Let them bring their long hair. They don't have. They can wear no shoes. Let them in. And everybody was like, "Keep them out." Cut your hair. Well, because there was a battle. Because things were changing. Well, she she finds herself in the middle of the battle because she ends up in prison. Okay, so she she ends up in prison because something goes wrong. So there's a debate about her birth date. What are our two options? April uh, eighteen, April April eighteenth, sixteen forty eight, or 13 April, 1648. All right. Everybody got that? Some believe it's a topological and other believe because it was a holiday that maybe they just waited to record it later on in the Paris registers. You can read about it online, but we won't go through all of that. All right. Sounds good. All right. Now, uh, so did someone say something? Oh, okay. I was, did I miss something here? All right. She was born in a wealthy family in France. She grew up during a time of religious turmoil. with clashes between Catholics and Protestants. So religious turmoil. Just keep that in mind. She's she's right there in the middle of it. Now, in 1664, 1664, she is 15 years of age. However, other sources say she was 16 years of age. So she was either 15 or 16 in 1664. I don't know why there's debate there, but two different sources give. Yeah, 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 possibly. All right, but somewhere in that year, 1664, she's 15 or 16, and she has been proposed to many times. She's already been proposed to many times to get married, and she has turned them all down. Well, the family steps in, and the family puts her in an arranged marriage to a wealthy gentleman. And he's 38 years of age, All right? 38 years of age. Now, this is important to realize. Now, this is just another side note from history. So many times, even when we go back into church history, we will see things maybe that religious people were doing and practices and things that were going on that we look at and we will may almost declare as immoral or wrong and and I, I this is a very important lesson, and, no, and Christians never like to hear this that over and over and over certain moral issues are not obviously as clear as we want them to be because the church has had different views on certain issues of morality, and they change, meaning that in many cases the morality is being determined by something other than what scripture culture moral issues influence the church. We, don't, we always want to believe it doesn't. We always want to act like, our moral standings come from God's word and it hasn't changed in a millennia. Well, you just read church history and you'll be like, wait, what was going on? A 38-year-old man was marrying a 15-year-old girl? Obviously something changed, right? Yes? Okay, so I just want to make sure we, we understand that. All right. So she marries this gentleman. And, uh, he's 38 years of old. Okay. Do what? No, it was arranged. Yeah, I don't know how much choice she, she had in, in the situation, right? So I don't know. Uh, but during their marriage, uh, they uh, she, uh, Madame Guyon suffered at the hands of her mother-in-law and maidservant. Adding to her misery were the deaths of her half-sister, followed by her mother, and her son. Her daughter and father then died within days of each other in July of 1672. So she's married. She suffers at the hands of her mother-in-law her ma- and maidservant. She, there's misery with death of her half-sister, followed by her mother and her son. Her daughter and father then died within days of each other in July 1672. She bare another son and daughter shortly before her husband's death in 1676. After 12 years of being unhappily married, and after the birth of five children of whom three survived, Madame Guyon became a widow at the age of 28. Now, that's a lot of stuff happening. She's suffering. Some kind of, they're doing something to her. Family members are dying all around her. She's in a marriage she doesn't probably want to be in. It's arranged. She's severely unhappy. Now, this is, we've talked about how culture impacts Christianity. This is very important. Your life experience can greatly impact your theology when you're going through all of that, you may turn to a theology that does what? Renounce everything in this world because everything in this world from her experience is terrible. Right? You may have a different theology if things in your life have gone well and you love the things in this world. You may look at it no, we enjoy the things of this world because these are blessings from God and you should enjoy it. But if everything in your life has been bad, you may develop a theology that says, why are you holding on to this world? Because this world is condemned. You should renounce it. But you may be wanting to renounce it because of all of your experience. So many times we don't understand how our, our experience impacts our, our perspective sometimes our perspective is much more driven by something psychological or something experiential than it is biblical. And it's hard to get people to see that. It's hard to get people to see that. Does that make sense? So, and and, and when when you have these theological debates with someone, sometimes you have to, it's hard to get someone to stop and go, whoa, whoa, stop arguing. Why? Maybe there's a deeper reason why you're holding to this position has nothing to do with scripture. You know, we we talked about this, about how in many cases our, uh, our so-called righteous indignation in many cases is nothing more than us projecting our own struggle with sin. So we come across as so condemning to cover up what we really are. There's a lot of that in Christianity. Well, you see that experience, right? Okay, and then um, another source. So that one says 15 years of age. This one says, at the age of 16, Madame Guyon, or Jean married. And then uh, she, a wealthy man, more than twice her age. Together they had five children. However, their marriage was marked by difficulties and disagreements. So it was not a good marriage. It was not a pleasant marriage. Now, when did she become a widow? 28. Now this is interesting. Prior to 28, her life's not going very well, it sounds, right? I mean, we don't get all of the details. We could probably read her autobiography and fill in a lot of the the gaps. But it, it doesn't, from all sources, it doesn't sound good, right? So a lot of unpleasantness. No, the culture, the culture, yeah, the culture is in bright. The family, they don't, at this point, they don't talk much about where they hold. But something happens at the age of 28. At the age of 28, that's important. Now, some say maybe a little before, but it's getting at, obviously, at the end of all of this, the deaths and everything. All of these, it's somewhere remotely connected to all of these bad things. Somewhere around 28, She experiences a so called spiritual awakening that deepened her faith. Something happens, some kind of experience or experiences, because depending on what you read, she she definitely is drawn to a more mystic understanding of Christianity. Very much influenced by Catholic mysticism, all right? As this source says. She started practicing contemplative prayer. So before we can proceed looking at her life, we need to spend some time talking about contemplative prayer. I've talked about it here in part. I've talked about it on the podcast. I've mentioned it many times. So let's just take a, a, just, let's just, we, we have her at 28 years of age and we can see at 28 years of age, she seems to become very interested in contemplative prayer and begins to practice it. Because she has a spiritual awakening of some sort, okay. Now, what? Well, I could ask you what you know about contemplative, contemplative prayer, but for for time's sake, we'll move quickly through this. Right? Contemplative prayer is a form of prayer that seeks to go beyond words and thoughts, focusing on deepening one's relationship with God through silence and stillness. Contemplative prayer is a form of prayer that seeks to go beyond words and thoughts, focusing on deepening one's relationship with God through silence and stillness. Now that silence and stillness are key words because this is what she's gonna get in trouble for, all right? That silence and stillness is gonna be an issue here in a minute, but we'll talk about it, all right? Contemplative prayer is often associated with mysticism, although similar practices can be found in other religions and spiritual traditions. Now the history of contemplative prayer can be traced back to early Christianity with its roots. Does anybody know where? They're referenced sometimes as the desert fathers. The desert fathers of the third and fourth century. Okay. These early Christian hermits and monastics sought solitude and silence as a means of encountering God in a more direct and intimate way. So this is about encountering God in a deeper way, in a more intimate way. Now you can see why then the book gets called Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ, right? And you can see why this may have been very, appealing in in the 1970s for those who are coming out of the hippie movement who are already very spiritual. They're looking for something deeper. Contemplative prayer goes all the way back to the 3rd and 4th century. So it's an old concept that's just going to kind of, well, in a sense, show back up. In fact, it's still practiced today in Catholicism and in many religious uh, circles. Still uh, a practice. Contemplative prayer became very, uh, the emergent church loved the idea of contemplative prayer. There are many Christian uh, groups who condemn contemplative prayer as being basically mystic and cultic, right? And should be avoided. And there's others who think it's a deep part of church history. So everyone has strong opinions about it. But it's about what? Encountering God in a more direct and intimate way. Please note the word encountering, right? Now, throughout the centuries, various Christian mystics and spiritual writers have emphasized Contemplative prayer, and I could name a lot of these individuals, but you, you get the idea. It's been a part of Christianity for a long time. All right? Contemplative prayer is characterized by a focus on stillness, silence, and attentiveness to the presence of God. So, what are you focusing on? Stillness silence, and attentiveness to the presence of God. It often involves letting go of thoughts and distractions, allowing one's mind and heart to rest in God's presence. This prayer practice aims to cultivate an inner awareness of God and to deepen one's union with the divine. See all these things about deeper, deeper, more, more intimate, closer, Like, it's, it's all about going to this next thing. Now, let's just, let's just realize this. This kind of language has been a part of Christianity ever since the third or fourth century. And it raises a question about human beings within Christianity. Because every, almost every Christian book, when, when they market it, it's always about, this book will take you to Something more. It'll, it'll it'll get you further along in your Christian life. It'll be a breakthrough. You'll learn more more about prayer. It will deepen you. It's always like, hey, here, here's where you are as a Christian, but you need more. So every book promises to do what? Give you more. Get you further. Get you more intimate with God. Deepen your relationship. Help you grow more, more. In fact, if you think about how Christianity is marketed, it's like every commercial. Every commercial gives you a product that does what? Better hair, better teeth, better this, better that, better that. Because it tells you whatever you have, this is better. Hey, you're having a you're gonna get have a get together? Well, you need this beer to make it better. You need this to make your cookout better. You everything is to make it better. That's how it's sold. Christianity does the same thing. On one hand, we sell Christianity to the world. Hey, if you get Christianity, your life will be better. You'll have better this, better this, better this, better that, which lots of times people then get very disillusioned because all of the promises don't come to pass. But we don't stop there. Once you become a Christian and you have faith in Christ and supposedly you're saved, you still need more You need more. You need to go deeper. So then every book, I mean, the prayer of Jabez, did it not say that? Hey, this is going to revolutionize your prayer life, the purpose-driven life. This is going to give your life purpose and direction. You need that. I mean, just name the book. It's the marketing. And, And so you have to ask yourself why. Now, the answer may not be very positive because it seems to tell us That just Jesus and the Bible is not enough for us. We need more. That every conference come to this conference and it will revolutionize your, everything is sold that way. And it's like, at no point do we ever go, well, I thought Jesus was enough. (laughs) No, 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 no. Jesus isn't enough. You need my DVD set. Well, that's a dated reference. You need my this, you need my app, you need this for $19.99 a month. You need whatever. You need my conference. Whatever. You've got to have this because you need more. Well, this is kind of the same concept. And the and the desert fathers were already going there. They needed more. So how did they get more? They were like, peace out we're quitting our jobs, we're leaving our families, we're leaving everything, and we're going to a monastery where we can get more. Okay, that, that's, that's what they did. They just, they went out, and, remember, that used to be the joke. I mean, I've talked about it many times in church history. There were more Christians in the monastery than there were in the cities. Now, you can't blame them, because in some cases, they looked at scripture and thought that's the only thing they could do. So contemplative prayer is characterized by a focus on stillness, silence, attendance to the presence of God. It often involves letting go of your thoughts and distractions, allowing one's mind and heart to rest in God's presence. This prayer practice aims to cultivate an inner awareness of God and to deepen one's union with the divine. In contemplative prayer, individuals may use a simple word or phrase known as a mantra or a prayer word to help them focus their attention. The repetition of this word and phrase helps to quiet the mind and open one to the experience of God's presence. Experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. This This is going back to the early desert fathers. Right? Does everybody understand that? Okay. Contemplative prayer is not about seeking specific outcomes or answers from God, but rather about being open and receptive to divine love and guidance. Oh, divine love. You can see where that would have fit in in the 70s. Right? You, You can see that. It is a practice of surrendering oneself to God's presence and allowing God to work within and through the individual. Overall, contemplative prayer is a spiritual practice that invites individuals to go beyond, there's the word again, ordinary thinking and to enter into a deeper, are you getting getting the idea? Communion with the divine. It offers a pathway to experience God's presence, peace and transformation in a profound and contemplative way. All right, so there's contemplative prayer. So she's 28, she has some experiences and she becomes really committed to Contemplative prayer. Now you can see why she would possibly be drawn to it, right? What is the world offering her? Pain and heartache. You can see why she may be drawn to experience. She, because everyone wants to experience something. We, 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 we people, we're people who want experiences, whether we like it or not. People pay money for experiences. So she she's going to find her experience with God. Because she's not finding experience in love. She's not not even finding experience with her own family because, I mean, her kids are dying, right? In fact, yeah, she obviously doesn't have a good relationship with her kids because she's about to give them up and we'll see here in a minute, all right? So so during her marriage, she she began to retain a belief in God's perfect plan, fiercely believing that she would be blessed and suffering. So she starts in her mind, God has a perfect plan and I'm suffering, but I'm gonna be blessed. Well, you can see why you would wanna believe that, right? Because either, what, what's, your, what's your answers when you're suffering? Despair? Give up? Or believe there's some plan in it, right? So she starts believing this, all right? This becomes true especially after being introduced to mysticism by Father Francois Lacombe, all right? Oh, is that Francois? Oh, okay, oh, thank you, all right? Uh, Francois. Okay, that okay, looks weird, but okay. That, that's how it's spelled, I guess. All right. I'm like, it should be spelled differently. All right. Francois. And would you say Lacombe? Lacombe. All right. I got that right. Yay. Look at that. Yay. That's it. I, I'm going to end this lesson right now. See, as soon as I knew that everything is, is in French, I was like, I'm, I'm, I'm done here. Okay. All right. But so, but she's introduced to mysticism by Catholic priests. Now, he's going to get in trouble too. So he's going to get in trouble. She's going to get in trouble. Everyone's going to get in trouble. All right? So she's introduced to it by uh, by them. All right? Now, um, after her husband's death, she lived quietly as a wealth, wealth, wealthy widow before reestablishing contact with Francois Lacombe in 1679. After three mystical experiences she felt drawn to Geneva. That's interesting, right? Geneva. Yeah, Geneva. Yeah, I know, but what about Geneva? Okay, that's a big place for Calvin, right? The the Protestant Reformation, so it's interesting that she felt drawn to there, right? Now, the bishop of Geneva persuaded her to use her money, and I'm not even going to try to pronounce his name. No way am I even attempting that. All right, no way, all right? Now, since Sarah seems to be an expert on this, do you want to uh, tell us his name? Okay, are you sure? Please, show off, okay? This is your opportunity, okay? Okay, Jean, we know his accent, okay? Yay, okay. Okay, oh, Jean, okay, all right, there we go. All right, see, she can help us here through all of this. Okay, that's good. All right, he persuaded her to use her money to set up a house for new Catholics. All right. And this was a part of a plan to convert whom? Protestants. Right. In July 1680, she leaves with her young daughter and travels to the place they want to set this up. All right. The project was a problem. Well, she, she no, she's going to go to a different place, I think, for this. Right. But because she now they want to they, they want I mean, she's got money. OK, that's that's one. Of, she's got money. And they're like, hey, she's got money. We have a project that we need, and that is to set up a house for new Catholics so we can try to convert more Protestants. But when she gets there, things start going wrong. All right. Because she classed with the other sisters who were in charge of the house. So there, she she finds herself in conflict. Clearly, she finds herself in conflict a lot, okay? Now, you could try to figure out why, I don't know, but she finds herself in conflict, okay? Now, guess what happens? The bishop sent Father Lacombe to intervene. Okay, now he's the one who introduced her to mysticism. Now, he's gonna show back up. He's gonna show back up, all right? At this point, Madame Jean Guyon introduced Lacombe to a mysticism of interiority, right? This idea of the interior life. So now, because she's taken his mysticism, obviously has developed it, now she's going to feed back to him kind of a deeper, this deeper understanding of the interior life. right? Does that, is everybody okay with that? All right? Her daughter, at this point, is, is in a convent, OK. Uh, Maidam Gayan continued experiencing illness and great difficulty, including opposition from her family. She gives over guardianship of her two sons to her mother-in-law and takes leave of her personal possessions. So she, in a sense, starts doing what? Kind of breaking free from every all of attachments. She's just giving it all up. Just giving it all up. Now, of course, it's always easy for us to look back and condemn. You know, every, that's always the thing with history. You know, some people will look. It's funny. Sometimes a person can be a villain in their life, but history will remember them as a hero. And sometimes someone in their life can be seen as a hero and be remembered as a villain. Because once you're dead, people can do whatever they want with your life. So you, we can sit there and criticize. But at the same time, she's been suffering. And now, look, when you're suffering, I mean, there's two ways of looking at it. And this is very important because some people may not want to hear this, but it's very true. You can be going through life and it's pain, suffering, pain, suffering, and you get tired of it. Now you have two options. You can just break free from it in a very fleshly way. I'm done with it and I'm going to go live my life and I'm going to do what I want. Well, you don't have much spiritual justification for that. And people may say you're a selfish jerk. But she can break free from it all and say she's doing it for God. Yeah, she gave up her possessions. She, uh, or, she or she she keeps some money coming in. Yeah, and uh, she gave her ki- or she signed over her kids to her mother in law. Okay so but yeah she keeps some money she keeps some money but she's giving she's breaking free from some of it but by having money she get, get, gives her the ability to do what she can pursue whatever she pursues without having probably to need a man <laughs> because her past experience she may not want to get married again right i mean i could see i could see some practical reasons for what she's doing here right does that make some sense okay all right hopefully that does all right now um Because of her ideas on mysticism, the the bishop of Geneva, who had at first viewed her coming with pleasure, asked her to leave. (laughs) Okay? And at the time, they expelled Father Alecum. They, they, They tell them both to get out. Because they show up with their mystical ideas and they're like, you gotta go. You gotta go. You gotta go. So she's finding herself in conflict with Family, she's finding herself in conflict with the church. she's finding herself in conflict with everything. You could see why maybe she would have been really popular in the 1970s. Right? You could see how she could kind of become like a, a hero, all right? Now, so there's a little bit about there's a little bit about her, her birth. We've talked a little bit about her marriage and motherhood. We've talked a little bit about her contemplative prayer. We've talked a little bit about her life. Now, she becomes pretty connected with this idea of the inner life and union with God. Her inner life and union with God. Her teachings revolved around the concept of union with God through contemplative prayer. She emphasized the importance of surrendering oneself to God's presence and following him to work within one's soul. All right? All right. We're gonna to have to move quickly through some of this, all right? So inner life and union with God. In fact, there's a book by her called Union with God. I don't know if that was the original title, but Union with God. I've got a collection of the works of Madame Jean Guyon, all right? But you get the you get the idea. So inner life and union with God—that's what she's pursuing, and you can see why. Everything external is what—not good. So so we can see. The, the external pressures moving you in a certain... I, I just, I, I, I that's such to me, if I'm going to look at this from a historical perspective, we, we always want to learn from history. And what I want us to see is so many times your Christianity takes shape because of other forces. Other forces that are acting upon you other than scripture. And so you develop a Christianity that looks a certain way but it's being shaped by these external sources. And I think a lot of what she's doing here is being shaped by the things that's happening to her. And I don't blame her for that because it happens to all of us. All right? Then let's talk a little bit about her imprisonment and persecution. All right? Her teachings and spiritual practices attracted followers and critics. In 1688, she was imprisoned for her beliefs and writings. However, during her time in prison, she continued to write and express her devotion to God. And it was while she was in prison that she wrote Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ. That's the, I'm going to keep referencing this name. I know it's not the original name, but I'm going to keep referencing it. All right? This was time, when she was she in prison? Now, guess what she was accused of? No. She was accused of advocating a heretical teaching, at least the Catholic Church deemed it heretical. I bet you Sarah knows. And what is it? Okay, but what's it called? Quietism. Quietism. Yeah, quietism which was considered heretical by the Roman Catholic Church. Now, we need to know a little bit about what quietism was, right? Quietism was a religious movement that emphasized the passive surrender of the self, to through a state of quiet and stillness. You see where all of that sounds like what? The Desert Fathers, does it not? Catholic mysticism, and let me make it very clear: if you if you want to know my views, Catholic mysticism is the mother of charismatic movement. It's there, at, it, at least it's the it's the elements, right? It, it's all the elements. A lot, or not all of the elements. Many of the elements are there. Many of the elements are there. All right. Okay, it is it is taught that one should detach from all desires, including the desire for union with God and simply remain in a state of passive receptivity to God's will. So in other words, you basically to give up all your desires. Give up all your desires and sit back and just be a willing recipient of God's will. In other words, you stop. Well, what would be another word for this? Die to yourself. Stop having any desire. Now, you can see why. If life, just think about this. From a psychological standpoint, you can see why she would be drawn to this. If life keeps disappointing you, what's the best thing to do? Stop desiring anything. All right? It's that joke, since I gave up hope, I feel a lot better. You stop hoping, stop desiring. Then you'll stop being disappointed. You can see where she would be drawn to this. All right? Now, we could get into the key uh, figures associated with quietism. I think uh, I think Sarah said his name. Okay, yeah, Molino, a Spanish priest who wrote a book called The Spiritual Guide in 1675. He taught that the highest form of prayer is achieved by being still and inactive, allowing God to work without any effort or active participation on the part of the individual. In other words, you don't need to do anything. You just sit back and let God. You get yourself out of the way and you let God. So he, he becomes very important in all of this, right? And you can see how this fits with contemplative prayer that goes back to the Desert Fathers. Okay? Well, well, you can see why. The, so much of this is influenced by the monastic life, right? So you can, you can see why a lot of this would be, all right? Uh, The goal of spiritual life was complete annihilation of the self. You're completely annihilated and absorption into the divine will. They rejected the idea of striving for virtue or engaging in in external religious practices, emphasizing instead the primacy of internal stillness and passivity. So in other words, don't focus on external religious actions. Sit back, be passive, and let God do His work. Now, that's kind of interesting, right? Well, it kind of blows away going to church. You could say maybe why Catholicism is a little mad, but it just seems like it's really emphasizing the sovereignty of God. It is the 1600s. The Reformation is really emphasizing the sovereignty of God. So it, it just seems like, hey, just stop doing anything. Just let God do it. There, that seems like a little, I'm not saying it's a direct correlation, but it just seems interesting. All right. Now, the quietism was condemned by the Catholic Church in 1687 by Pope Innocent the Eleventh. He issued a papal bull, which condemned quietism as heretical. Yeah, this is why she ends. Yeah, she ends up in trouble, right? Eleventh, he he issues a papal bull, condemns Quietism as heretical. The bull stated that the teaching of Quietism undermined the necessity of human effort and the importance of the sacraments in the spiritual life. You can see why they would be mad, eh? because this is like you're not doing anything. It it just basically says I don't have to do anything. I don't even need the sacraments. And they were like, that would be very, that would be antithetical to Catholicism because why the sacraments make what? And now I, I'm, I'm going to say this in a jaded way. I'm going to say it in a jaded way, but sacraments make what absolutely essential? Church. Yeah, exactly. Because you can't have the sacraments outside of church. So if you need the sacraments, you need the church. If you don't need the sacraments and you don't need to do anything, you don't need the Church. So this would be a direct attack upon the church. You could see, you could see why this would all come into play, right? Does that make sense? All right. There's a lot more here. I could talk about Quietism. You can read all the stuff about it uh, because it's interesting. But we don't have time to get into it. All right. Okay. Um, she's imprisoned uh, ultimately at the request of the Archbishop, a, who was a prominent spiritual writer himself. He accused Guyon of heretical teachings and spreading false doctrines. He believed that her mystical ideas could lead people astray and undermine the established religious hierarchy. Okay, the church. So she's getting herself in trouble. Now you can see they would be very sensitive at this point to anyone because it's the 1600s. They've just had to deal with the Protestant Reformation. In fact, they're still dealing with the outworkings of it, right? So if she comes along and has some kind of teaching that seems to make the church not necessary, (laughs) like this girl's got to go. We got to get put her in prison and shut her up. You can see why, right? That's that's always the way it works. Okay. Um, She spent several years in various prisons. They name some of the places. All right. There were harsh conditions and restrictions, but she continued to write and produce books. Her most famous. Experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. Her most famous, right here, all right? Now, I'm going to give you two of her beliefs really quick, all right? First, beliefs about prayer, and then about grace versus works. You ready? Guyon believed that one should pray at all times and devote all of one's time to God. All of your time should be devoted to prayer and God. All of it. All of it. Now, you can do that when you have money coming in, right? She, didn't have, she, had, she had money coming in, so she didn't need to do anything. And she had given up her, uh, her guardianship of her kids, so, you know, she had... It's it's always easy to say, oh, you should spend all of your time with God when you have... When, yeah, right, you know, so just you got to at least take that into consideration. Uh, she said, Prayer is the key of perfection and of sovereign happiness. It is the uh, efficacious means of getting rid of all vices and of acquiring all virtues. Uh, for the way to become perfect is to live in the presence of God. Walk before me and be blameless. That's that's a key verse. Walk before me and be blameless. Genesis 17:1. It said uh, God to Abram. Um It becomes important because it shows up at least in the, maybe the original version. I don't think it shows up in this version. No, it doesn't. In the original, it's right at the beginning, uh, that walk before me and be blameless. It's right in the beginning. It's not in the uh, the beginning of this one. Prayer alone can bring you into the presence of God and keep you there. Uh, She wrote in one of her poems, there was a period when I chose a time and place for prayer, but now I seek that constant prayer in inward stillness known. In other words, she... I'm not going to stop seeking prayer. I'm just going to live in a constant state of prayer, a constant state of prayer, right? Which is then this kind of spirituality. And we all, and you can see why. If everything in the outside world is full of pain and suffering, then what would you retreat to? You retreat to this, all right? Does that kind of make sense? Now, grace versus works. This is where she's definitely would get herself in trouble. you Ready? In the Christian dispute regarding grace and works, Madame Jean Guyon defended the belief that salvation is the result of grace rather than works. Like Saint Augustine. Now, this source, I think this may be from Wikipedia, they have Saint Thomas Aquinas. I don't want to include him there. Um, just on the paper I had to write on St. Thomas Aquinas on justification, I don't even know what he believed to be on. Okay. I'm going to skip that. Because there's no way Thomas Aquinas should be listed with Calvin and Luther. I just don't, I don't, I don't see that. I don't see that. But that's a whole theological issue. The point is, she seemed to be, she seemed to be going this direction. She thought that a person's deliverance can only come from God as an outside source, never from within the person, himself or herself. That's all God. Nothing we can do. All right. Um, as a result of his own free will, God bestows his favor as a gift. So in other words, when she talked about free will, who did she accredit it to? God's free will is the one who works, not us. All right, which is pretty interesting that that's kind of the direction she went. All right, Uh, in her autobiography, she criticized self-righteous people who try to gain heaven through their works. She praised lowly sinners who merely submitted themselves to God's will. Of the, old, of the so-called righteous, she wrote, and I quote, the righteous person supported by the great number of works of righteousness he presumes to have done, seems to hold his salvation in his own hands and regards heaven as the recompense due to his merits. His Savior is for him almost useless. These righteous persons expect God to save them as a reward for their good works. In contrast to the self-sufficient righteous egoist, the sinners who have selfishly submitted to God are carried swiftly by the wings of love and confidence into the arms of their Savior who gives them graciously what he has infinitely merited for them. God's bounties are effects of his will and not the fruits of our merits. That's pretty good, is it not? That's really good. So she clearly was influenced by what? The Protestant Reformation. Greatly influenced by. And so she was seen somewhat as a rebel, somewhat as a troublemaker, and, and got herself in all kinds of trouble. Now, ultimately, she passes away. And then I'll just go through a quick timeline she wrote the experiencing, the original was written in 1685 while she's in prison. So Experiencing the Depths of Jesus Christ was originally uh, published in 1685. Now, originally it wasn't supposed to be published. She just did the writings to like give to friends or to people she knew, but then people requested more of it and then it ultimately started getting published. All right? 1875 appears to be the first English translation. And guess what it was called? A short and very easy method of prayer. A short and very easy method of prayer. Not, doesn't sound too, kind of sounds like, okay, interesting. But then something happens. 1975, a modern English translation is put out. And lo and behold, the name is no longer a short and very easy method of prayer. It's now called experiencing the depths of Jesus Christ. I wonder why. Now, I cannot 1,000% prove this, but I'm gonna say Christian publishing world they have to keep up with what's going on in the world of Christianity, and in 1975, you're you're right at there. You know, you, with the with the kind of you know, everyone kind of says the hippie movement died at Woodstock. You know, that with kind of the end of that wor- that world, right? And now, but that world, those those hippies had moved into Christianity. And so, I, I mean, I don't know what it would have looked like in 1975 talking to Christians. I don't know. But many of them would have been greatly influenced by the entire hippie movement. Whether, whether they were hippies or not hippies, that would greatly in, in, influence a large segment of culture. There's just no way to get around it. It greatly influenced it. So they had come into Christianity bringing that mindset to it. Well, if they're looking for a spiritual experience, something deeper, something that would say renounce desire and things and materialism, who comes in to fill in the gap? Madame Jean Guyon, And everyone's like, oh, here we have it. Now, you start reading it, you're kind of like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with any of this stuff. But in some ways, some people looking for a deeper spiritual life, that it may, it sometimes that fits the, Like You don't need to understand it. It's supposed to be deep. It's supposed to be mystical. So then that's that fits it. You can kind of do whatever you want with it, right? So it's just crazy how the book changed. And so I think in some ways, as she was influenced by the religious times of her life, her book becomes influenced by the religious times in which it is found. Now, in 2024, the book is really not that influential anymore. It really isn't. I don't, I mean, I, I mean, well, you don't have Christian bookstores anymore. I mean, it used to be what was influential was what? What was in the Christian bookstore, right? Because when you want, you're going to go get a Christian book, you went around and you looked where? In the Christian bookstore. And if you kept seeing the same book over and over and over and over and over, then guess what? There was a chance you would ultimately get it, right? Because, you know, especially in my mind, when, when I first walked into a Christian bookstore, I just thought, all of these books are on my team. Right? I didn't realize, <laughs> I, I didn't realize later on that, wait a minute, there's some messed up stuff in here, right? I, at the time, I didn't realize that. But, uh, but, but what you saw in a Christian bookstore, because typically, the way, I don't know about your Christian life, the way I learned about Christian books were through either a sermon where a pastor mentioned a book, and then I would go find said book and read it, right? Or what I saw in the Christian bookstore. You know, right? Well, yeah, it was in a Christian bookstore. It was a Christian bookstore. So, like, I mean, that's, that's how you, you didn't really know. I mean, you didn't have podcasts, you had Christian radio. So if you heard them mention a Christian book, then that's how you, like, you didn't really know. So whatever was in there. So who was controlling then? The Christian publishing world was controlling. And so they have, to, and in the Christian publishing world, what do they have to do? They got to put out the kind of book that think the people are buying. And if the people aren't buying systematic theologies and Bible encyclopedias and Bible dictionaries, well, then you've got to put out a different kind of book. So a lot of times people get mad about what's in Christian bookstores, but the only pr- problem, I mean, not, now it's irrelevant, but back in the day, you could blame, blame yourself, blame the Christians who didn't go buy books, okay? Because who bought the books determined what was going to be there they, because they're like, this is a bestseller, then what immediately they do we got to find a similar book. So there was a time this was influential. Now, I come along the scene in the 80s, right? So this is still sticking around, obviously, in the 80s. And to the 90s, this is still sticking around. And it's still sticking around because you still have some of those older generation who came from the Jesus movement, right? I mean, I didn't understand... You know, if I'm at a Christian when I was a teenager in the night, I didn't understand that they could have been coming from the G. Je- I didn't really know what the Jesus movement was, right? I didn't understand it. I just knew... The only thing I knew about it was contemporary Christian music. I knew Keith Green. Okay, I knew some of these people who came out of that movement. And I'm like, okay, Larry Norman. Okay, Mylon Lefevre. Okay, I, I, I could I could think of some of the, the the Christian groups coming out of that, you know. And then you have the Rise Petra and all of these bands. And so I started learning about that. And I'm like, but I still didn't really know what the movement was, right? I just knew hippies turned into Jesus people. All right, big deal. I'm a teenager. I don't care, right? I. I I didn't really care. Right. So I, I did. But I, I, I always I, I connected it more to the music. I didn't never connected it to the Christian books. Right? I didn't connect it to the Christian books. So when I saw this, I was like, what is this? Right? I'm like, what is this? Right. Because you, you read I mean, when you read things like one of the most influential spiritual books ever penned. And then the thing that caught my attention almost immediately was this. At one time, this book was publicly burned in France. And I'm like, well, I've got to have that. Okay. Any, if you're burning a book, I'm buying it. Okay. That's the, I don't care what it is. If you're going to burn a book, I'm going to buy the book. All right? That's a, so I, I mean like, oh, I've got something. I got something. It's bad. <laughs> like, I got something. I don't know what this is. But they burned it. If they burn it, I'm keeping it. Right? I don't care what it is, right? Because I don't think you should burn anything. Like, I can't stand. I can't. I, I hate burning books and banning books, okay? So I was like, there's something here. And then they mentioned Watchman Nee. Now, I, I knew his books were obviously very popular in the Christian bookstores at the time. Watchman Nee, who also was this more a like, deeper life, experiential, and I'm like, what is, this? and some of his writings, I was kind of like, what is this stuff? So there we have it. And well, now I don't have time. And then the last sentence on the back this book will introduce you to a whole new and deeper relationship with Jesus Christ. Still using the same, the same marketing, pl- 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 marketing points are still utilized today. Churches use that same marketing point. Come to our church for a Deeper relationship. Be in a small group for a... Everything sells it. And nobody ever catches on that. We're just being marketed to. So in some ways, I feel bad that when she first wrote wrote it, she wasn't marketing it. She was just trying to give it to friends. And so it goes from something not about marketing or selling books to now it turned into something different. Now, uh, I don't believe so. I believe she died, did not die in prison. I believe she was out of prison. She was only in prison for a couple of years, but I think she was out. Oh, right. Okay, so I I, I didn't write down the original title because I didn't know. I think I saw it. Okay, you looked it up. Okay, I think I saw... It, but it was not in English. It was, in, it was. I'm like, okay, I don't know what that says, so I'm not gonna guess. Okay, so, so the original title was a short and very easy method of prayer. That was the original title. So that even tell that even it much more convinces me that it was turned to this for marketing. And I don't blame them, but it just shows how what influences what culture. Now, in this case, Christian culture, but so so many times, just think about so many times your Christian life is influenced by three, I'll end with this, three things. Your own experiences, so then you kind of form your own Christianity. By the culture around you, wherever you grow up, right? You see that all the time, right? If you grow up in the South, your Christianity tends to be much more, maybe, patriotic, America, pro-gun, maybe pro-republican, that kind of thing. And if your Christianity is from somewhere else, like in other countries, they're like, "What are you, guns and Christianity? That, what is that? Like they don't. Even, they're like that's they're repulsed by the idea. So we're we're influenced by what culture, and then our own experience, right? And then we are influenced by Christian culture, right? Okay? Secular culture." personal experience, our, personal, our own personal culture, and Christian culture. And meaning that so much of our Christianity is not very authentic. Just like I always talk about uh, lordship salvation. I had no idea what I was being influenced by. I didn't know. I thought that was Christianity. I didn't know I was walking into a a kind of a Christian transformation happening. I had no clue, right? I just like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to believe because in every Christian bookstore, there were 50 copies of MacArthur's books, right? He was on Christian radio. I didn't know that I was hearing something that that nobody before knew of, and then I was like, okay. And, And so then I thought, that's the way it was. And then all of a sudden you start realizing, maybe that's not the way it was, right? Especially then when Catholics are telling me, that's Catholicism. And I'm like, oh, well, I'm not one of you. I'm like, well, <laughs> you, you clearly are. Okay, so then that was it. And then Bobby's throwing stuff at me, telling me we're done. Okay, now, all right, are we good? That's a, I, can't, I can't get into the book, but it gives us all the background of the book. So that covers from what, 16, What was, when was her birth? 1648 to 1685? 1685? That last day. Okay, so uh, that kind of and and it brings in all of the stuff happening at that time. So a little bit of church history. All right, let's pray. Lord, God, we come before you this evening. Lord, we uh, thank you that we can be in a church where we can just dig into church history and understand how history and culture influences our Christianity. Lord, I know everyone in this room and anyone listening. We want to believe so many times that our Christianity is shaped by your word alone, but sometimes it's just more self-deception. Help us see really what influences our beliefs and our ideas, because if we can't see what's shaping them, then we can't ever really truly evaluate them. Forgive us for where we're influenced by things other than your word and help us be influenced by it more. And we ask this in Jesus' name. God's people said, amen.